This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra. Author Joe Burns was in Dallas on April 6, 2022, and he gave a very good talk about his new book called Class Struggle Unionism. He wants to change the way the unions operate. There are five important points that I got from the book. You can listen for them as Joe Burns gives his 30-minute presentation. The five points are, one, today's unions have no chance of success. Number two, they're going to have to fight the bosses for ultimate control of production. Number three, they must not be afraid to break the law. Number four, international solidarity is necessary along with support for immigrants. Number five, build fighting caucuses. Here's Joe Burns. Good evening, everybody. So let me just give you a little bit of my back. You know, I'm a former public employee. I know uh, we've got a lot of public employees here. I was a hospital worker in Minnesota. I was president of my local prior to going to law school. Uh, the last 20 years, I've been, I bargained in healthcare before that, uh, after law school. In the last 20 years, I've been bargaining, you know, pretty much full-time in the airline industry. And that's really what uh, brings me to town. I'm working with the American Flight Attendants uh, Union, APFA. We're negotiating a contract at American. Um, so, uh, you know, stay tuned. We'll probably be looking for support as we proceed. You know, I've written, this is my third book, as indicated. Um, my first book I wrote about 10 years ago called Reviving the Strike. And I wrote that because, you know, back in the late 2000s, no one was talking about striking. And to me, that was weird because that was the fundamental source of our power was the strike. Um, you know, since then, in the last decade, I think a lot of folks have, uh, you know, really coalesced around the idea that we need to strike, luckily, and we're seeing a lot more strike activity, you know, spurred by the Chicago teachers and, and you know, the red state teachers revolt. So we have public sector. Last year, we've seen a wave of uh, private sector strikes, you know, sort of the return of the strike to the private sector. My second book was about a public employee strike wave of the 1960s. But I'm really here to talk about my third book, which is Class Struggle Unionism. And, you know, I, I wrote this book because, you know, my other books talked about the tactics and, you know, things we needed to do to change as a labor movement, but didn't really get at the fundamental ideas that we need to uh, recover, in my opinion, to revive as a labor movement. And class struggle unionism starts, you know, with a, you know, a very simple difference in forms of unionism. So for the first 100 years of unionism up until the 1980s, the two main competitors uh, of sort of union thought, one of them was this what we call bureaucratic business unionism. But it was a unionism that has a very narrow focus and folks are really... Uh, you know, trying to better, which is a good thing, you know, better the lives of workers at a particular plant or maybe a particular craft, but doesn't really see their role as sort of challenging the, the sort of system overall that I'm going to talk about. And against that, you had another form of unionism, which is called class struggle unionism. And class struggle unionism, when you think of some of the great strikes in U.S. history, you think of the IWW, which is the Industrial Workers of the World, which flourished in the early 1900s and had a you know, sort of mission and slogan that they represented all workers as opposed to the business unions at the time, which many of them were racist or represented a small group of skilled workers. So you had a fundamental divide in the labor movement, and that continued. 
through the 1920s and 30s where the class struggle unionists fought out these bitter, bitter strikes against great odds, the Gastonia mill strikes in the late 20s down in the Carolinas. And in doing so, they really paved the way for the great gains that we made as a labor movement and a working class in the 1930s. And then coming out of that, they built a civil rights unionism in the South that had a broad vision of what a union can be and what a union should be in terms of ties to the community and putting anti-racism at their core. More recently, and this is where I got the tail end of it, in the 1980s, um, you know, the, a lot of the labor, you know, sort of student anti-war activists from the 1960s entered the labor movement in the 1970s. And this is a time when management's beginning their crushing assault against the labor movement, where union, where industry after industry in the 1980s, they came in there and they busted union contracts and pattern contracts. And, you know, I started out in the labor movement, kind of, I got the tail end of that. And we had, a, you know, what I consider part of the class struggle trend. A lot of unions are trying labor management cooperation. If we just be nice in the face of this assault, we can survive. And a lot of us said, no, you know, we need to fight back. Labor Notes, which is a great publication. They're having a conference this year. They're, uh, you know, I was an intern for them back in uh, 19, well, for TDU, but it was the same office back in 86, you know. You know, they put out pamphlets and books called How to Concessions and How to Beat Them against the team concept in labor management cooperation. But it really charted a different vision of what the labor movement can and should be. So with all that, let me uh, dive a little bit deeper into what is class struggle unionism and how does it differ from business unionism and how we can apply it today to build a powerful labor movement. It really starts with a simple proposition and you know it's, it, it requires kind of looking at the work transaction a little bit differently than we've uh, looked at it our whole life. You know, most folks, you just kind of take it for granted. You turn a certain age, you're 15, 16, 18, you got to go out and get a job and work for an employer. If not this employer, then another employer. And you work for a set hourly wage. If you happen to have a union, you might get a, a, a higher wage or you should get a higher wage and you will. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether you're a truck driver or a flight attendant or a barista or a nurse. What you all have in common is during your work shift, your labor transforms the input of the employer and makes it greater. And that's why they hire you, because you produce value. And class struggle unionists start from the very simple proposition. Their slogan is, labor creates all wealth. Working people create everything in society. Everything good, everything that we have, um, that's built by working people. But in the course of their workday, <coughs> Workers are not paid for the full value of what they create. And I can go, I go into it in detail in the book, but basically the class struggle, the, the employers, and I think the business unionists tend to call it that the employers are making profit. The class struggle unionists look at it a little differently and say, call it theft. Because in reality, how do we get billionaires in society? And is that really a natural form of, of, of things? So like we take it for granted, that, that, that someone should have a billion dollars or $150 billion, but it's not normal. And, and I don't know that people really kind of get the scale of it. You know, if, if an average worker makes $50,000, you know how much it would take to make $150 billion that Jeff Bezos had? It would take three million years, over three million years to make that much money. 
For a billion dollars, you could spend $10,000 a day, and that would be 274 years. The average billionaire on the Forbes list has 8.1 billion. That was a couple years ago. So it would be 2,000 years they could spend it. So anyway, it's, it's just obscene wealth. And a lot of time in the union movement, we just take it for granted, right? We, we, we put our noses down. We're trying to negotiate a contract. We're fighting for pennies, for dollars. We're fighting for work rules. They act like it's the end of the world if we want safety provisions. But at the end of the day, even when we got really strong unions, what happens is the employer is amassing more and more power because that's what money is. That's what capital is. It's a social relationship. It's power. So... Class struggle unionism starts from that analysis. On the one hand, you have class struggle unionists, which says labor creates all wealth. On the other hand, you have a more limited view that we're fighting for a fair day's a wage for a fair day's work. So you can kind of see that there are very different ways of looking at the world. And from that very simple analysis stems two completely different forms of unionism. So class struggle unionists, they don't see themselves as just, you know, representing uh, workers at a particular plant or employer or craft. They see themselves as part of a bigger working class, which is engaged in a struggle against an employing class. So because of that, when you look at class struggle unionism through history, what you find is that the class struggle unionists um, put anti-racism, anti-sexism at the core of what they did. Um, long before the mainstream unions were forced to uh, uh, adhere to anti-discrimination rules, not because of themselves, but because of the federal government stepping in in the Civil Rights Act of 1964, um, class struggle unionists were fighting for an inclusive labor movement. But even beyond that, class struggle unionism um, produces a very different type of unionism. And it all stems back from, the, from that basic difference. So let me walk through what I see and what I talk about in the books are some of the key elements of class struggle unionism. Number one, because they see this transaction in a certain way and they see it as part of a larger struggle, class struggle unionism traditionally have embraced what's called them and us unionism. They understand that on every issue, the union and the company have uh, opposing issues. Um, what, it doesn't matter whether it's wages or safety or whatever it is. Um, if we get a provision, management loses. Management loses control. Management may have to pay more. Um, and that's, that's really a, a key feature. Um, opposed to that, you know, unfortunately, what we've seen in the last several decades is that a lot of the national unions um, decided to go in a different direction. And in the face of uh, management uh, attacks, uh, they went for labor management cooperation. So you can take the auto workers. Um, you know, recently they've been beset by some scandals. The, the last three presidents are in jail um, for corruption. But the corruption isn't just a, you know, it's not something that just sprang from nowhere. Um, it's really been fostered for decades by this, by management sort of setting up these institutions where they were paying the union and paying, uh, paying the uh, employers. I think the federal uh, uh, indictment talked about it, that they were trying to keep them fat, dumb, and happy. But they also went for jointness. And rather than fighting for the workers and fighting the speed up on the shop floor, um, they tried to raise production standards and they thought they could out-compete other, other non-union uh, uh, employers. Uh, 
but all that does is it's a relentless race to the bottom. So class struggle unionists, you know, I, I, I think historically the ones I've known and seen, you know, they go looking for fights. They're, they're ready to take on employers because they see that as key. The other big difference with class struggle unionists is class struggle unionists um, fight for the shop floor. They really understand that work rules matter. Um, a lot of times you'll get like attorneys, I'm an attorney too, but I, I'm also a longtime negotiator. But uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the attorneys or um, staff um, will come in there and they'll think that the contract's all about the wages. And if you get a 2 or 3% wage increase or a 4% wage increase, I think you can look at some of the settlements of the last year from the private sector strike wave. There was like a real gulf between the sort of aspirations of the workers who wanted to get rid of two-tier, who wanted to fight over who controls residuals from Netflix and so forth. And then they come up with these settlements where, you know, it kind of falls short and they end up with just some wage increases. Um, but I think class struggle unionists, and, and really it's tied down to this sort of core issue. Because when, when you engage in this transaction and you agree to work for an employer, what they're doing is they're buying your time and your capacity to work. But your capacity to work is attached to yourself as a person. So that sets up this sort of natural conflict where the employer is trying to drive you and increase their profits or the value that they can extract from your labor by you know, squeezing you to work harder, or to work longer days and all of that. So that's why these fights are so important. In fact, we know as negotiators that the real money in a contract is the work rules, right? The employer comes to us and they said, we'll give you a big increase if you give up your duty day or your whatever for the flight attendants or, or, or you know, different things in different industries, weekend work and so forth. The other sort of key feature of class struggle unionists that I've really you know, you know, noticed over the years as sort of a, a, a fundamental um, principle is class struggle unionists, unlike a lot of the middle class reformers who you know, attach themselves to the labor movement, um, class struggle unionists believe in the idea that workers have to you know, emancipate themselves, that workers need to leave their own struggles. So you see the class struggle unionists over the years, um, some great folks, and I've known a lot of them, uh, you know, engaged in union reform efforts, supporting union democracy, um, fighting against corruption, fighting for more democratic procedures. And that's really a core element because if you really believe in this sort of idea that workers should be, you know, uh, playing a leading role in society, you have to start with that in your own unions. And finally, class struggle unionists have an idea and an understanding of the role of the government and government mediators that um, really in courts and, and, and an understanding of the system that the system isn't really set up to support workers, right? The system is set up to support this whole mechanism to raise wealth for the wealthy and protect private property. So class struggle unionist is an ideology, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, is a, is, a, is a sort of set of ideas which we need to sort of validate the type of tactics that we're going to need going forward. Where if you look back in the 1930s, the way we won our unions was by sit-down strikes where the workers say, hey, some absentee owner doesn't have a greater stake in this business than we do. We're the ones who created the value. So that's why this sort of idea is uh, fundamental uh, to, the, to the form of uh, unionism. So th those are some of the 
the, the sort of uh, differences that class struggle unionism has with bureaucratic business unionism. I, I'm going to introduce one more sort of concept here, and you know, which which I, I, you know, folks who have been around in labor a bit and and interacted in the labor movement uh, may may be familiar with. But you know, when I started out, you know, it was probably the 1980s in the labor movement. You know, we had a lot of, like I said, a lot of bitter strikes going on. We did a lot of strike support work. These were, you know, business unionists, but they were fighting like hell to, you know, industry after industry, meatpacking, the paper workers, the miners, everywhere there were these big, big battles. And, you know, I think a lot of us had an idea back then that the way to fight ourselves out of it was to build a fighting militant labor movement, right? They're fighting us, let's fight back, you know? So, you know, fight concessions, let's strike, let's expand strikes, let's do what needs to be done. Um, but they also developed this sort of new idea, and I call it labor liberalism. And it was really, it, it was important because it was like this third way. On the one hand, you have class struggle unionism and business unionism, which are two sets of ideas which kind of clash against each other historically. And then you get this other way, which was what I call labor liberalism, but it was like a third way. Um, and it was kind of typified by SEIU, the service employees in the 90s. I don't know who was around in the 90s doing union stuff, but they had their purple jackets and they were leading the way. And there was a lot of discussion about we were going to have an organizing approach and we were going to go out there and they had all these techniques and we were going to talk to workers and we were going to, um, you know, we were going to, um, you know, do corporate campaigns and we were going to do, you know, one day strikes and we were going to, these sort of savvy organizers were going to save the day. And, you know, literally billions of dollars, I think SEIU spent a billion dollars between 95 and 2005 just by themselves organizing, trying to convince uh, workers to join these unions. But the problem is the working class had showed little desire in joining a weak and declining labor movement and that the fundamental problems weren't addressed. But also this form of unionism, and then it kind of morphed into, you know, we had social unionism, we had, you know, you know we had this alt-unionism, we had like a lot of different ideas come and go over my time in the labor movement. Um, but a lot of them, you know, while, while on the one hand, you know, they had some good ideas, right? They broke out of the business unionist sort of narrow, narrow framework, and they said, let's take a progressive position, let's reach out to the whole working class. But in doing so, they abandoned like a lot of the fundamentals of class struggle unionism. They built like, you know, some of them, you know, in the, in the quest to organize new workers built like these huge mega locals that had hundred, you know, 100,000 members up and down the East Coast that the members couldn't conceivably have any influence in. They brought in staffers who had never worked in an industry and placed them in charge of the, of the janitors or whoever it was. So it, it was very different than class struggle unionism, and in, 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 in many ways it was different than business unionism. A lot of the efforts focused on, you know, like the fight for 15, which is a good thing. You know, we're fighting to raise wages, although now 15 seems kind of yesterday, right? It, it, <laughs> um, but, but, they, but they engaged in, in that, but it really kind of left out sort of workplace-based struggle, which has to be at the core of trade unionism. You know, I'm sure everyone has uh, followed, uh, hopefully, the uh, uh, Amazon labor union, uh, the great victory, right? So, uh, you know, which, which, which I think is really a wake-up call uh, for the labor movement. Um, you know, a lot of the, you know, sort of official unions spend 
you know, literally millions of dollars trying to organize Amazon. And then you got this group that gets there and says, and to their credit, they said, we're going to do it differently, right? And I don't think anyone really believed them, but they did worker-to-worker -worker organizing. They actually studied a lot of the works that this, you know, sort of the, the class struggle folks from the 1920s, and they kind of took in those lessons. And they basically threw out 30, 40 years of theory and said, we're going to go back and kind of create our own way. And to me, and I know there's another group, Amazonians United, who's kind of doing a similar thing up in Chicago and, and expanding out of there, where they're not even going for government elections, but they're building marches on the bosses and stuff. So I think we're seeing a lot of uh, experimentation in the labor movement where folks are willing and able to look at uh, different tactics and different ways of doing things. So I, I'm just going to touch on a, a, a couple of the related points. Um, and then maybe we can have some discussion. Um, but so, so really, when I think of you know, class struggle unionism, I, I, I see it as a, a, as a sort of basic framework that can really help us answer all of the questions we face as a labor movement. I, I have a chapter in the book called Class Struggle Tactics. You know, because one of the pressing uh, issues we face as a labor movement is how do we possibly revive ourselves as a labor movement in the face of these repressive labor laws? You th I, folks probably, I, I don't know how much folks followed the, the strike wave of the last year, the mini strike wave in the, in the private sector. But you had the, you had the employers going into court and getting injunctions on the flimsiest of evidence. Um, they even went so far in, uh, I don't know if it was Warrior Med or whatever, Alabama, um, they went so far as to ban all, one judge uh, banned all picketing whatsoever. You know, so they're basically taking away our constitutional rights. And, and, and they, they limit us and the cops protect the scabs to go in to take the jobs. So one of the questions we face in the labor movement, and I think one of the questions that we were starting to discuss in the late 1980s, was how do we break free? You know, how do we bust free from that? So I think there's a lot of... Um, a, a lot of examples we can learn from history about how we're going to need to do that and how we can do it. I don't have the answers, but I think I point in the, in the direction. But one of the things is clear is that one of the most important things is what's in our heads, right? If, if we have a sort of clear set of ideas that validate our tactics and validate what we're doing, that's like the fundamental point to uh, move forward. Um, a lot of other questions, you know, we, we, we could talk about. Um, there's, there's a lot of discussion in the last few years for those, uh, uh, I know a lot of folks, or some folks here might be in DSA, uh, in the labor uh, group there. I know there's been discussions about, you know, what are the spe very specific ideas like the militant minority and rank and file strategy and a lot of those ideas, which I'm not going to go into in detail, but they're all basically... Um, they're, they're kind of frameworks or, or, or subtopics that folks are getting into about how do we carry out our labor movement and how do we tackle the question of rebuilding the labor movement. Because make no question, and, and let's be clear, everybody, and even if you're in an industry where we're okay now, such as the airline industry, um, but only six out of 100 public uh, private sector employers are in unions. Um, the employer would like to drive that, the employers would like to drive that down to zero. Um, they are engaged in a class war against us and our unions, uh, whether we believe it or not. So, so I think we need to kind of 
you know, get together and start talking about what does it mean to have a, a sort of class struggle strategy that's not piecemeal? And what does it mean for the labor movement? What sort of demands are we putting on our national leaders? What sort of labor movement do we need to be able to effectively take on capital? Because we do know, we know that we can do it. And we know that in the early 1930s, the labor movement was in a very, very grim situation. Um, yet these sort of class struggle unionists got out there and they, they fought and the AFL, which was the main labor federation at the time, didn't want to fight. Um, they didn't want to organize mass production workers. They didn't want to take on employers. They weren't even for unemployment insurance, you know, during the Great Depression. So the class struggle unionists got out there and really, and really fought and, and, and they, changed, they changed the way we did things. They changed our unions and they created a better way of life for millions and millions of working class Americans. So, you know, I'm very hopeful. You know, I know, I know, you know there's, a lot, there's a lot of stuff in the labor movement. You know, there's a lot of ups and downs over the years. But I know and I've seen when we build a labor movement that's based on, on, on working class people and, and based on a sound set of ideas, there's nothing that we can't do. We can revive the labor movement, but we need our own way of thinking. We gotta get rid of the boss's way of thinking. So that's what, I, you know, at the end of the day, that's what my book is about, Class Struggle Unionism. I hope you guys wanna check it out. <laughs> So just try to get my attention. I'll do my best to like make a little note, and I'll you know point to you in some way. Uh, so, Gene, uh, you were the first to raise your hand. Okay, a guy called me today, and he said, among other things, that the Solidarity Center has been bought out by the government. And I tended to agree with him, but I would like to get your opinion. The, the Solidarity Center, meaning the auto workers headquarters? No. Oh, no. Oh, the Solidarity, Solidarity House. Oh. Solidarity Center is the international, it used to be called the International Department of the AFL-CIO. Yeah, and AFL. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, we asked your question. Could you please say your name and union? My name is Dean Lance. I'm in the UAW. Thank you. Okay, and, and you're talking about oh, Solidarity Centers, which used to be AFL. So, so, um, so one of the points I didn't touch on is that I, you know, class struggle unionists um, believe uh, that we're part of a working class, right? And the working class is not just uh, workers in this country, right? Uh, corporations, Amazon, doesn't matter who you're talking about, uh, auto workers, uh, they have plants all over the world. So, a, you know, a, a sort of conservative labor movement will say, we're only representing workers in our country, we're gonna, you know, fight against, you know, foreign imports, but it never works. And class struggle unionists have this idea that we're all together and, 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 uh, and uh, in it together. Um, in the 1980s, the uh, 60s through the 80s, the AFL-CIO um, received a lot of funding from the government 
and supported a lot of sort of anti-labor re repressive regimes around the world um, through the A-fields. And there's books on that. I, I may quote them. I may uh, cite them in the books. Uh, 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 so Kim Skypes has written a lot on that. Um, with the, after the mid-90s, they switched it in name uh, to the Solidarity Centers. But the problem is the federal government's still funding it. And, you know, so, so you know, who, 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 who's paying what and why? So uh, I don't think they're paying it to support workers around the world, and I think it's a question that needs to be addressed. That's my official position. <laughs> okay, I'm going to just pause to record any hands that I see up. Uh, uh, Justin, your name? Sure. <laughs> I'm Justin, and I'm with uh, the American Federation of Government Employees. Um, as you mentioned in your talk, a big issue, I think, especially among our labor unions here in North America, is that oftentimes our leadership of the internationals ends up being fairly distanced away from the actual uh, shop floor and that kind of thing. And I'm actually the president of my local myself, and I do a lot of volunteering of my own time, free time, in fact, I think I do my work. Mm -hmm. I do get some official time during the work they do it, but I'm also, um, I work for the Environmental Protection Agency, I'm an enforcement officer and inspector, so I still got that as part of my duty well, and quite honestly, it's very easy to see myself getting burned out pretty much having basically having two jobs at the same time. Mm -hmm. So my question to you is, how do we make sure to come, continually engage our fellow workers essentially to be able to both to have a rotating cast of leadership essentially so that you have, I guess, a closer uh, bond between leadership and the shop floor essentially? Yeah, so I, I think there's a couple things in there. One, one, one to, just to start with, and I talk about it a bit in the book, but um, it, one of the things we used to talk about more in the, probably the 70s and 80s was this concept of the labor bureaucracy, that there exists a whole stratum within the labor movement who people, I mean, I'm full-time union, but, you know, who are full-time and their lives look very different from the workers that they represent. Um, they may be a lot more timid or they don't want to go looking for fights because it's more work and so forth. Um, so, so part of, you know, building a new labor movement is kind of managing and dealing with that bureaucracy and making sure that we're having initiatives come from the workers involved. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, a sort of a set of organizing techniques, I, I think the labor movement gets set up and, 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 and not just by happenstance, right? It's designed to be bureaucratic. The employers want us to follow bureaucratic procedures. You know, back in coming out of the Great Depression, you know, the unions were, had a lot of power on the shop floor and did strikes and mini strikes and they took on the issues with the workers involved. But the employers tried to drive everything into the grievance procedure and, and, and make it so that it didn't involve workers, right? So that it was, uh, you know, obey now, grieve now, obey, uh, grieve and obey. So anyway, so I, so I think, look at how do we do unions, our day-to-day -day union work that's a little more active, uh, activist, right? How do we involve people? How do we do little mini campaigns that pull people in? How do we include more people? That's how you develop people, in my idea, in, in my set of thinking is through uh, action and activities and you bring in new people. That was author Joe Burns explaining his book, Class Struggle Unionism. I hope you got these five points. Number one, today's unions have no chance of success. To win, they're gonna to have to fight the bosses for ultimate control of production. Don't be afraid to break laws. 
Number four, international solidarity and support for immigrants. And number five, build fighting caucuses. This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra.